texts that she had taught to the children. And so she passed out paper and crayons and they began to draw. And as she walked around the tables, she saw that one little boy had drawn an incredibly large aircraft with a very big cockpit. And in the cockpit, there were four people. And she was amazed by this, and she went up to the child and she said to him, um, I love your drawing, what is it that you are depicting uh, in your drawing? And he looked at her in amazement and said, well, I'm drawing what you just taught. And she said, well, explain your drawing to us. And she said, well, this is a picture of the flight into Egypt. And then she asked the young child, well, who are the four people in the cockpit? And he said, well, it's Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Pontius the pilot. Now we can laugh. Please laugh at my joke. <laughs> we can laugh at what young children might imagine when they hear terms that adults use. What we cannot do is laugh at the carnage we see here as Herod tries to destroy young Jesus, the Christ who had entered the world as a human baby. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, Magi had arrived in Jerusalem from the east, probably from Persia, and they ask about the location of where the Christ child, the newborn king of the Jews, will be. And when reports of these inquiries that were circulating through Jerusalem, inquiries of the Magi, reached this very insecure puppet king of Judah, he immediately began to plan the death of the Christ child. Now his initial strategy was to use the Magi as informants for him. And so the scriptures tell us that he gathered together the priests and the teachers of Israel and he asked them what the scripture had to say about where Jesus the Christ would be born. And they turned to Micah, uh, the book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah, and that prophecy had been written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and they rightly directed King Herod to the scripture said that the boy would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Herod directs the Magi to go to Bethlehem, and he tells them, when you find the young child, I want you to come back after making a, com um, a complete search of the area and tell me where this child is. The scriptures say in 2.8 that he said, go make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I can go and worship him. Now these magi were directed to the house where Jesus was. And Jesus, as was mentioned last week by Pastor Kozlowski, is a child of some months of age. They're directed there by the star, and the scriptures tell us that they bowed and worshiped Jesus, and they presented him gifts that were gifts fitting for royalty, the kind of gifts that you give a king, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. But they do not do as Herod asks. They don't go back to Jerusalem and tell Herod where the young child is. And the scripture tells us in 2.12 that God had warned them in a dream that they dare not go back. And so they returned to their country using a different route that would not take them through Jerusalem 
and bring them into contact with Herod. Now, Herod had a long history of murdering anyone who was perceived by him to be a threat to his throne. And probably the most common cause of death in his family, if you could go back and look at all the death certificates, would say, death by Herod. The bloody king's plot to put Jesus to death is not going to end just because the Magi don't do what he said. In 2.16, Matthew tells us that when Herod realized that the Magi were not going to report to him where Jesus was, he was furious. And the word that's used there means he was out of his mind with anger. So he's not even acting rationally now. He is so mad that they have not reported to him. And in his rage, he gives the order that all of the baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem and in Bethlehem itself, who are two years of age and under, are to be put to death. Now in 2.7, Herod had interrogated the Magi with regard to the time that that star had appeared that brought them from the east. And he did that so he could determine what age Jesus would be. And probably Jesus is a boy that's maybe nine months to 13 months old at this time. And Herod is so determined to make sure that Jesus is murdered, he probably builds in um, a factor here uh, of safety for him to make sure that this one whom he fears is contender for his throne is put to death. And that's probably how he came up with the two years of age and down. If you think about it, if the Magi had miscalculated, he still gets to kill Jesus. If the soldiers can't tell what age, a, you know, what a baby looks like at nine months or 13, whatever Jesus was, by choosing uh, two and down, he's likely to kill Jesus. And I think we should stop for just a moment because sometimes we can read this stuff and not really project our feelings into it. But can you imagine what went on in Bethlehem when the soldiers came to take those little boys and to plunge daggers or um, uh, swords into their hearts. And I was thinking about it as I studied this, probably there were parents that tried to flee with their babies uh, close to them and soldiers were ripping babies out of the arms of fleeing parents and dashing to them to the ground and putting them to death. I mean, this is just a horrible thing uh, that was taking place. Now remember, we teach this all the time uh, about incarnation. Jesus is fully human and he's fully divine. So the Christ child is fully human and fully divine. At Christmas, the second person of the holy and blessed Trinity took to his divine person a fully human nature. In this Christ child, there are forever joined humanity like yours, except without sin, and divinity. If this Christ child is pierced by the soldier spear, the Christ child dies. But the Lord God of heaven sovereignly ordains what comes to pass for his son and for you, for each of us. He is the author and protector of life. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17.25? He says that God himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. I see in this story God's protection 
of your life, of my life. Think of how God protected the life of Jesus. In 2.12, God warned the wise men in a dream that they were not to return to Herod. If they had gone back to Herod, Herod would have gotten a confession from them as to where Jesus was born, by hook or by crook. In 2.13, the Lord sent an angel to Joseph who instructed Joseph to flee to Egypt with Mary and the child. He also informed Jesus, I mean, he also informed Joseph, the angel did, that Herod was looking to kill the child and he told Joseph to stay in Egypt until he came back, till the angel came back and told him to return to Israel safely. In 322 BC, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. Now you know a little bit about Alexander the Great. He was Greek, he conquered the whole world. When he had conquered it all, he was depressed because there was nothing else to conquer. When he conquered Egypt, he gave Jews in Egypt and all Jews who would flee there the same rights as Greeks had. And again, he is Greek. So there developed a really large community of Jews in uh, Egypt, especially in Alexandria. Ten years after Jesus' death, Philo, a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher, is going to say there are a million Jews in Alexandria. Even if he stretched it a little bit, there are a lot of Jews there. The God who governs the universe, who orders all things according to the counsel of his own will, was preparing a safe, welcoming place for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Now, he had other things in mind for sure, but he was doing that way in advance of what takes place in our text. Now, God protected Jesus' life by placing him in a family where the parents were absolutely obedient, as far as sinners can be, to the instruction of the Lord. When you read all of the text with regard to Mary and Joseph, what you'll find is that they typically just obeyed without question every single thing that God said to them. If Joseph and Mary had not submitted to the will of God in this matter, Jesus would have died. Matthew tells us in 2:14 and 15 that when the angel revealed God's will to Joseph, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Joseph and Mary don't say goodbye to their friends. They don't say we're going to hang around and finish up our business dealings in the town. The carpenter doesn't go and collect some unpaid bills. He doesn't do any of that. They left during the night, immediately after the angel communicates them the will of Almighty God. Now, Kevin mentioned this last week, and I was sitting smiling because I thought, if he preaches my sermon, what am I going to do? But uh, the border of Egypt is about 75 miles from Bethlehem. The place where Mary and Joseph and Jesus likely would have stayed is probably something like 100 to 175 miles uh, uh, from the border into Egypt. Now, that is a long journey to take with a child who is just months old. And again, we don't know how old, maybe nine months, maybe 12, 13, not sure. But to make that journey on foot carrying a baby would take a long time. It would probably take at least a week for them to walk that far. 
And there would be cost along the way, lots of cost. And then when they get into Egypt, until Joseph makes connections and starts earning money at his trade, they're going to need money. And this is the part that Kevin mentioned. Those gifts, we don't know for sure, but the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh certainly could have been used to help them maintain themselves on the journey with Jesus and in Egypt until they could get established. Now think about that. Think of God's provision. Now we're not told how long the Holy Family lived in Egypt, but commentators speculate that it was probably about two years or a little less, because you've got to date the death of Herod and all of that before they can go back. So probably a couple years or less. Matthew tells us in 2.19 through 22 that after Herod died, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he told him he could return to Israel. But in that return, we see more of God's protection for the Christ child. Upon Herod's death, this wicked, wicked king, his kingdom was divided among three sons that he hadn't killed. And he did kill sons. So the kingdom is divided between these three. Joseph had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, but he had also heard that Archelaus was a worse butcher than his father. So the son made the cruel father look sane, made him look like a piker, as my mother used to say. Because Bethlehem was in Judea, this wicked man's territory, Joseph instinctively fears going there, but God confirms Joseph's fears. The Lord, who is guiding and protecting and providing for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, uh, confirms Joseph's instincts with the angel message. When his instincts are confirmed, Joseph takes his family to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Galilee was ruled by one of Herod's sons, but this son, Herod Antipas, who is the co-conspirator in Jesus' death, his crucifixion, is far less cruel than his brother. Now think about this. Herod did everything he could to destroy Jesus. We've established that Jesus is a frail human being. He has true humanity. He can die. Now, Jesus is a helpless little infant. He's dependent upon his parents and all of the circumstances that God brings to bear in his life. But Herod cannot kill him. Jesus has an appointment with death, but before the time determined for his death, by his Father in the eternal counsels of the Trinity, nobody and nothing can really end his life. In John 7.30, this is one of my favorite verses, has been over the years. In John 7.30, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the religious leaders come to him to put him to death. And you know what, what the, the writer says there, what John says? It says, no man could lay a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And I'll tell you why that's been uh, a favorite of mine, and helps you to live life free of anxiety, I think. And it's this. What is true for Jesus is true for you. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers, that's us, brothers and sisters, in every 
way, Hebrews 2.17. His humanity is your humanity. God planned Jesus' birth. He planned his life and all his life events and experiences. He planned the nature of Jesus' death. And guess what? He's the same God who has planned all of those things for you. He does the same for you. The Father cared for and protected the life of Jesus from conception to resurrection. And it's theologically precise to say that God does that for us too. I'd like you to see not only God's protection for life, but fulfilled prophecies that certify Jesus as Messiah King. And that's what this passage uh, is about. That's one of the primary themes. One of the major themes of all of Scripture is that God is building a forever kingdom, and it's going to extend over all the earth. We just sang about that in the lovely Christmas carols that we sang uh, during the Christmas season. The king who will rule over this kingdom that extends over the whole earth is prophesied in Scripture in the Old Testament specifically about 332 times. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel to convince Jews and anybody who would read this gospel down through time that Jesus is the Messiah King who comes on the scene in exactly the way the prophets foretold. Throughout Matthew's gospel, God through Matthew presents evidence over and over again to show that Jesus is the King in God's kingdom. Now look how he does that just in the first two chapters that involve the Christmas story. In 2 Samuel 7, God had told David through Nathan the prophet that there was a king coming who would rule on David's throne and he's going to be an eternal king. He's going to forever rule this kingdom. Matthew traces Jesus' line in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, back to Abraham through David. Jesus is royal. Jesus has a legal right, according to the prophecy, to rule on David's throne. Then Matthew shows that Jesus was conceived by the Virgin Mary, fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in 714, that the Virgin would conceive the Messiah. Matthew emphasizes the universal worldwide rule of King Jesus by telling how God, through a miraculous sign, brought Gentile magi astrologers to worship this king who will be king over all the world. And they bring gifts, 2, 1 through 12, that are the gifts that you bring to a king. Do you see what Matthew is doing? Do you see what God is doing as he certifies that this Jesus is the Messiah? Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, the writer of the gospel then chooses four additional Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' birth and infancy. The prophecies are so detailed that they cannot happen by chance. Because they happen in the king's birth and infancy, he can't conform himself to the prophecies. He can't fake it. He's an infant. And each one involves a geographic location. The four locations are Bethlehem, Egypt, Ramah, and Nazareth. 
In Matthew 2, 16 through 18, the gospel writer shows Jesus to be the king by Herod's horrific actions. Herod took very seriously the words of the prophet Micah. He believed that these magi had actually seen a miraculous sign from God that was directing them to the king, the one who is born king of the Jews. He's not a Jew himself. He's been placed over the Jews, but he's not a Jew himself. He accepted the verdict of the Jewish priests and teachers that Messiah King would be born in Bethlehem. His belief in that drove him to attempt to destroy even God's anointed king. Think about that for a minute. We never have time in this particular service, but I've got to mention this. Think about the fact that he's trying to put to death the one that he thinks is Messiah King. Not just a regular baby, but he believes that this is Messiah King at some level. Micah the prophet prophesied sometime about 750 to 686 B.C. He brought oracles of doom and judgment on Israel because they had worshipped false uh, gods, because they had committed spiritual adultery. You know how a lot of the old prophets uh, speak to that issue that keeps arising. But Micah also saw a future when a king would come who would not be like the rulers in his day. This king would be a glorious king who would rule in righteousness and with justice. And he also said that that king would come from a crazily obscure village in Judea, Micah 5, 2. And Matthew quotes Micah's prophecy in chapter 2, verse 6, that you have before you, uh, where the priests and the teachers inform Herod as to the location of the king's birth. Now, Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth in Galilee. How will Jesus ever be born in Bethlehem of Judea to fulfill the prophecy? Well, it's not too hard for God, is it? To have the prophecy fulfilled, God puts it in the heart of the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus to just happen to decide that it's a good time for him to take a census of the whole world that he controls. And the census forced Mary and Joseph to go back to Bethlehem, their ancestral home, and the scriptures say, and I love the KJV on this, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. The king for God's eternal kingdom must be born in Bethlehem. Caesar acting freely, doing what he exactly wants to do, is an unwitting tool in God's hand to ensure that Jesus has all the prophetic credentials that relate to where he will be born. Second prophecy has to do with the flight into Egypt. God did not tell Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt simply because it would be a comfortable and safe place. Would you agree that God could have protected baby Jesus some other way? Uh, you've got to agree that with that. God could have protected Jesus some other way. The reason they had to flee to Egypt is because of a prophecy God had given through Hosea the prophet 750 years before the birth of Christ. It recorded in Hosea 11.1 1, that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. 
Now, Hosea spoke of God's adoption of the nation of Israel. And there's a scripture that relates to that around the time of the Exodus, like in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, uh, Exodus 4, 22. Uh, and of the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egypt in that Exodus. Now, in Matthew 2.15, Matthew applies this prophecy as having been fulfilled in Christ being taken into Egypt as a child and in his coming out. Now, Israel is a prophetic picture, we're being told in this text, of Christ. Israel was saved from death in Egypt. A pharaoh arose who was working hard to crush Israel. And they were saved in the Exodus. God brought them out and saved them that way. God brought Israel out of Egypt, and he also brought his beloved son out of that same country. The Exodus foretells of Jesus' life. The history of Israel is fulfilled in Egypt in that way. The flight into Egypt is about establishing Jesus' credentials as true Messiah. Third prophecy. Every child butchered by Herod in Bethlehem was a child too many. But I think accuracy to the text and what was going on demands that I at least mention the fact that the people who study what was going on there, the commentators, uh, think that there were probably a couple dozen babies that were slaughtered, not thousands of babies, because this was a tiny little village and there weren't huge suburbs around towns. Uh, in Jesus' day like they are today. But any baby that was slaughtered was certainly um, a baby uh, too many. The number doesn't mitigate that unquenchable grief that I had you relive that would have been felt in a small village where people were probably related to each other and where they knew each other. That grief fulfilled this third prophecy related to Jesus' birth and his infancy. Matthew writes in 2.17 and 18, what was said through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah was a town on the border between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It was the transport place where captives were gathered from the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and shipped into captivity by foreign conquerors. And so that town, that place where where Israelis were shipped out of their country, came to stand for all of Israel. Rachel also represents the northern and the southern kingdom. She was Jacob's cherished wife. She gave birth to Joseph and the ten tribes eventually come from Joseph. She also gave birth to Benjamin, and the two southern tribes uh, also, Judah and Benjamin, come from her. In Jeremiah 31.5, Rachel is pictured as still being alive, although by Jeremiah's time she has been long dead. She's seen as weeping bitterly as her children, the Israelites, are taken into captivity by foreign powers. Rachel's tomb is believed to be near Bethlehem, where where these baby boys are slaughtered 
by a foreign Edomite king, Herod. Matthew sees the grief of the people in Bethlehem after the little boys have been slaughtered as a second fulfillment of that earlier prophecy with regard to Israel that takes place in Jeremiah's day. Rachel, who is figuratively seen weeping for the people of Israel as they're departed, is seen again figuratively weeping for the babies murdered by Herod. The Holy Spirit, speaking through Jeremiah, intended the prophetic picture, this figure, to apply both to his day and to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament exiles and this New Testament event. So let's summarize quickly here. The king was born in Bethlehem, as Micah prophesied. He has gone into Egypt, as Hosea prophesied. He has, by his birth, uh, precipitated, he has, by his birth, precipitated, weeping among the people of Israel in Bethlehem that Jeremiah prophesied. Now, Matthew in our passage tells us of one last, one last group of prophecies. It's the same prophecy, but different um, prophets spoke of it. Upon returning to Israel from Egypt, the family would have normally come out of Egypt and gone through Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph knew that their son was Messiah King. At some level they knew because it's been told to them by shepherds, and angels, and magi. Jerusalem is the political capital of Israel and the religious capital of Israel. Bethlehem is the place where Christ was born and adored. So they might have been inclined to live in one of those two, one a city and a village. But these options were quickly ruled out because the God who ordains everything that comes to pass, and we want to drive that home today, that's our God, had arranged for this barbaric son of the dead king Herod, Archelaus, to inherit the southern portion of his father's kingdom, which included the area where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are, Judea. The less dangerous brother, as I told you, inherited part of kingdom of Herod's kingdom, which included Galilee, where Nazareth is. Joseph heard of this arrangement, so he was afraid to go to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem, and then God affirms that choice and completely closes the door to those cities by speaking to Joseph in a dream. And so Joseph takes his family to the safer area. He takes them to what had been his home and Mary's hometown. It is so very important for him to do that because we are told in 2.23 that a number of Old Testament prophets had prophesied that Jesus would be called Jesus the Nazarene. You have to grow up in Nazareth to be called Jesus the Nazarene. The people of Jesus' day knew these prophecies. If Jesus is the true Messiah, if he's God's anointed king, king of the world, he has to grow up in Nazareth. And God controlling which of Herod's sons rules where. Make sure that the prophecy comes to fruition. 
Matthew ties together all these prophecies that relate to Messiah's birth and infancy. Prophecies, again, are fulfilled at a time in Jesus' life when he can't conform himself to them. He's a baby, he's a child, he's dependent on the actions of others. In doing this, Matthew shows how the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus prove that he is God's anointed one. Lastly and quickly, Satan has always been working to destroy God's kingdom. And that's one of the themes here. You know, God lets us know right from the beginning, he's always working to do that. Herod attempted to kill Jesus in infancy. His attempt to do that is just one skirmish in a war that extends throughout time. We're told that there is another prince, he has a kingdom, and he's engaged in waging war against God and those who love and serve God. That prince is Satan. Genesis 3, 14 through 15, soon after Adam's sin, God gives a picture of that war that will wage through time in the curse that he puts on Satan. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. It's talking about the warfare between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Christ that will wage throughout time. Revelation 12, and you've got to read this in conjunction with the Christmas story, gives you the behind-the-scenes perspective on Herod's attempt to take Jesus' life and of the warfare that exists through time between the two kingdoms. There, a vision is seen, and it's a vision of a woman who is very pregnant. A dragon appears, a hideous dragon, before the woman who is about to give birth. And the dragon is going to devour, if he can, the woman's child. In 12.9, readers are told that the dragon represents that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And St. John writes in 12.5, remember John's writing the Revelation, that the woman, Revelation 12.5, the woman gave birth to a son who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. That's Jesus. In John's vision, God delivers the child from imminent danger, and the wife escapes to a temporary place of safety. This is a behind-the-scene look uh, of what Herod was doing, and that he was, it shows us that he was just a tool in the hand of a greater enemy of Jesus, and that greater enemy, of course, is Satan. In his attempt to destroy Jesus, Revelation 12, 17 tells us that that's what he, uh, Revelation 12 tells us that's what he was doing. In 12, 17, we are told that Satan continues to make this war against all those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That war is seen raging through the New Testament as you see the church battling Satan. That war is the theme of all of church history down to this very day. It is a war in which you are fighting today if you're a believer. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, Our struggle, the struggle of each believer, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. In, heavenly, in the heavenly realms. But though this struggle is unending in this age, 
The promise of Genesis 3.15 that continues all the way through the Bible to the book of Revelation is that the kingdom of Christ will never perish, Satan will never have total victory, and ultimately, King Jesus and his kingdom will have total victory. Revelation 11.15 affirms, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Book of Matthew, again, is written to prove in every possible way that Jesus is the Savior King promised in all of Scripture. Matthew wants his people, he wants us, to give to this King what the King requires of his subject, what every, every King requires of his subjects. Heartfelt allegiance, not phony allegiance, heartfelt, Heartfelt worship, heartfelt obedience. Matthew longs for his readers to confess what Peter is recorded of confessing with regard to Jesus in Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you say that today? Do you believe that Jesus is the anointed one of the Father, the Christ, the Messiah? Do you believe that he's the one that all of Scripture points to, the one who would come and be a suffering Messiah at first and bear the sins of all the people who trust in him and give them eternal life in his eternal kingdom? Is your confession of Jesus' lordship that? And is it backed up by a life that truly bows before King Jesus and desires by his grace to do whatever he asks. If the answers are no to those questions, as I pray, we invite you to consider your sin, consider God's remedy, Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords. Ask him to come into your life in a simple prayer of faith. Ask him to be your savior and tell him that it's your desire by his help that, you'll be, that he'll be your Lord, that you'll follow him wherever he leads. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for what has been recorded for us in this passage in Matthew. Father, it really is our prayer that those who are here who don't know Jesus, who are trying to get to the eternal kingdom, enter the eternal kingdom through their own good works, will realize that their works cannot do it, that only Jesus' work can do it. We pray, Father, that they will pray right now acknowledging that they're sinful, that they need a Savior. And we would pray that they would tell Christ that they want to have him come into their lives, take away their sins, that it's their desire to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name.